Welcome to another episode of Congo Kids Life Stories, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. This episode is about a lake called Kwada, located in the heart of Africa, the northwest corner of Democratic Republic of Congo, to be exact. This lake was a vacation spot for the missionaries in the Ubangi region, an area about the size of Illinois. The story of the discovery of the lake in the late 1930s, the construction of the four houses and other lake amenities, will be followed by memories of the lake from a kid's perspective. Then, several career missionaries will share how they viewed the lake as a rest spot to recharge, relax, and break from the normal work routine. Rounding out the episode is the legend and it does involve a witch doctor, of how the lake came to be and the continued superstition surrounding Lake Quata even to this day. It's quite a story and journey. So let's begin. I was able to scour archives going back as far as the 1930s and talk to numerous folks, some in their 80s and 90s, to piece together the timeline of how Lake Quata came to be the vacation and rest spot that it did. While I believe the timeline that I share is accurate, a few of my dates are deduced or estimated due to lack of written or verbal verification. When not documented, I say so. Nonetheless, this should be as thorough of a story and timeline that anyone's put together about Lake Quata that I'm aware of. Dr. Titus Johnson founded the Karawa Mission Station in our mission work in the Belgian Congo in the early 1920s. It took many years to get the homes and hospital constructed and the mission station staffed. It was in about 1938 that two American nurses, possibly Esther London and Martha Larson, undertook a 12-mile walk from Karawa with an African guide to lay eyes on Lake Quata for the first time. I also heard that Dr. Wally Thornbloom had trekked to the lake at some point in the late 1930s. The first documented hike to Lake Quata was July 12, 1941. They went to see the lake where there had been talk about building a rest house. Dr. Teddy Johnson, Alice Jensen, Eleanor Westberg, and Helen Price set out on bikes at 7 a.m. that morning. They rode and walked two and a half hours, then walked the rest of the way in two more hours. A few Congolese were ahead of them to cut the trail. The four ladies walked along paths with four to five foot tall sawgrass and also through some forest and jungle. As they approached the lake, they walked through some swamplands as the lake had streams leading out, making it wet and boggy. None drained into the lake. They also mentioned that the place wasn't haunted as a hundred of the natives went swimming. So apparently they'd been alerted that the lake might be haunted. Remember these two key points. The Belgian government had built a structure on the west side of the lake. This building was constructed of mud brick with a grass-thatched roof. The area around the lake belonged to the Belgian government because at the time, this was the Belgian Congo, a colony. That building was still there up through the 1990s when I was last there. We called it the State House. At 1.30, after a lunch and swim, the four ladies headed back and it started to rain. 
Then it got dark, arriving back at Karawa after a miserable, muddy walk at 8.15 p.m. Living in the equatorial rainforest in Congo was difficult in those early years of mission work due to living conditions, limited medical help, diseases, general hard work, being on call almost 24-7 with the Congolese, and the heat. Per documentation from Dr. Titus Johnson's journal and Harvey Widman's autobiography, Dr. Wally Thornbloom and Harvey Widman built the first rest house at Lake Quata in May of 1943. It was mud brick walls, grass roof with a cement floor, and had two bedrooms separated by a breezeway. It was built on a hill directly east of the main beach area. This house was called the MEU House, as the mission's name at the time was the Mission Evangelique de Lubangui. Harvey Widman and Dr. Wally Thornbloom also hauled in 10 loads of sand to create the main beach area. Then, in October 1945, the annual mission conference voted to create Lake Quata as a place for rest and retreat. Rationale was documented as follows. That because of the severe climactic conditions in the Congo, making necessary the careful safeguarding of the health of our missionaries, that it be recommended Lake Quata be developed for needed rest periods. The missionaries would be helped to regain physical, mental, and spiritual equilibrium after sometimes debilitating schedules and environment. So, to make this a reality, in June 1946, the mission voted to try to secure the property on the east side of the lake. The Quata Committee was then formed. On September 4, 1946, Art Lumblad made a formal request to have the mission lease the property from the Belgian government. A 10-year lease was granted with an expiration date of February 21, 1957. In 1947, the mission then began to make plans to build a permanent house, the missionaries did frequent the lake, as in August 1947, Dr. Titus Johnson notes in his journal the following about visiting Lake Quata. A most wonderful day. The water was wonderful. Surely, this is a future heaven in Congo. The lake was being used as a rest-slash-vacation area by some of the missionaries. Then, on January 26, 1949, Will Norton sent a letter with a check in the amount of 1,500 francs, or $30, to pay the ground lease payment. This is what I can determine from his transmittal letter. On April 26, 1949, Monroe Sholand was tasked to build a house. Then, in July of 1949, Monroe Sholand shifted the responsibility to build the house to Art Lumblad. As to the purpose of Lake Quata being a place of rest, it was in October of 1949 that the Norton family went there, staying in the Mud MEU house, immediately after the unfortunate death of their newborn child, Timmy. Notes from correspondents mentioned how lonely and quiet it was out there, far from any other missionaries or Belgians. Apparently, the construction effort hadn't gained traction, so on May 5, 1950, a Lake Quata Equipment Committee was formed, to start securing furnishings for the house. Then, in 1951, the Free Church Mission Board authorized the funding of twelve to $1,500 to build a permanent house. The Free Church and Covenant Church were working jointly in that area, and the Covenant also came up with the money to build a house for the Covenant folks. 
In April 1952, Norm Chapman was tasked with adjusting the property lines to ensure a proper 10-meter or 31-foot clearance from the houses. I've not been able to determine with certainty who built the initial Covenant House, though Art Lumblad would be a logical guess, even though I've asked all three of his kids, and none can confirm this. And construction would be around 1953 to 1954. The Free Church House started at about the same time. It was partially built in 1954 as Byron Seashore was asked to install the roof and Dick Anderson to finish the walls. Ole Olberg provided carpentry dimensions for doors, frames, windows, shutters, etc. Also, each missionary was asked to contribute 500 francs, or $10, to help finish the house. The Mission Executive Committee moved to start negotiations to purchase the property before the lease expired in 1957. In December 1955, the Executive Committee approved the purchase price of 18,750 francs, or $375, split between the Free Church and the Covenant. They also suggested a contest to name the houses. Only a few entries came in, so the board asked the Quota Committee to come up with the names of the houses. The next documentation I found was that they put the naming request in abeyance. My guess is the naming contest died on the vine. I was unable to find any further documentation as to how the names came to be, and nobody I reached out to knew either. Then in December 1955, Dick Anderson wrote a letter to Jack Dangers, who was in Congo, about Jack's pending trip to Lake Quata in January 1956 and about how Jack was going to knock a wall down in the Free Church House at Quata to add a fireplace. Construction had stalled on the Free Church House as an all-points bulletin went out to all the men for a, quote, all-hands work day for finishing the Free Church House from May 29th through 31st, 1956 by installing ceilings, doors, cabinets, and the like. Each missionary was also asked to contribute 100 francs, or $2, to create a fund to repair and stock the house. I reviewed exhaustive lists of needed items, including dishes, linens, kitchen utensils, clotheslines, an egg beater, and even a rat trap. Later, in May 1957, Dr. Arnold T. Olson from the U.S., offered to help get $400 or more in funding for finishing and furnishing the Quata Free Church House. The first Covenant House is to the northeast from the main beach area and is called the Big Covenant House, and it's tucked up under a bunch of big trees. It's probably the biggest of all the houses. The Free Church House is to the southwest of that, up on a hill. It was quite a steep climb up to the pad where the house sat. I remember someone posted a big sign on it that said, Shalom. As a child 50 years ago, I often wondered why that house had a sign on it. That was the only house with a name on it. Nobody I've contacted know where that sign came from or where the name came from. So unless someone listening to this episode knows, I guess I'll be going to my grave with this unanswered. At the annual meeting by the Board of Foreign Missions, held February 26th and 27th, 1957, they addressed the donation of $4,000 by Mr. and Mrs. A. O. Johnson of Oakland, California, for adding a duplex at Lake Quata. The Johnsons were the parents of Florence Chapman, a Congo missionary. 
This was written in the March 26, 1957 edition of The Beacon, the magazine put out by the Free Church denomination. Of interest, in a small sidebar, while reviewing this issue of The Beacon, I found a small advertisement placed by Mr. Ward Sutherland, a realtor with Huston Realty in Venice, Florida. His ad offered help with buying property or homes in that area of Florida and promised a great preachers to attend for any of his clients if they moved there. Why do I mention this? Ward Sutherland was my grandfather. And for what it's worth, he eventually stopped advertising as he never got one client from his ads. Yet, little did he know that in eight years, his then-teenage daughter, Sally Sutherland, would be a free church missionary in Congo, married to Roger Eels, with me and my brother John in tow. A decision was made not to build a duplex, but rather build two separate houses with the $4,000 donation. This would provide a total of two houses for the Covenant missionaries and two for the Free Church missionaries. Cully Edstrom, also a builder, was tasked with construction, and records show that action was, quote, taken quickly, unquote. So presumably in 1958, these two additional houses were built. The new Covenant house was built on the hill to the east of the lake where the original mud MEU house had been. The second Free Church house was built near the beach to the south. Both of these houses are smaller and of similar size and design. Jay Dangers believes his dad, Jack Dangers, a builder, designed these houses as they were both very similar to other houses he'd previously built. These houses had concrete floors and were made from cement bricks and had a permanent roof. They had three bedrooms, a kitchen, small dining area, and small living area. All of the houses had a fireplace as it would be cold at night being under the trees and close to the lake. The original road access to Quata was a long route that went out past Quata, then approached it from the east side but dead-ended. Harvey Widman helped build the last mile or so with the help of the local villagers, probably around 1943, when he built the mud MEU house. Then, the Belgian government, probably in the mid to late 1940s, built a road approaching from the south, which cut off considerable distance and was a more direct route from Karawa. These two roads then intersected at the south side of Lake Quata. They originally called it the Shortcut Road. The challenge was the last half mile, where the road had to be built through a swamp. We called it the Digue, which is French for dike, because we had to build up the road through the swamp. It was always muddy and wet and had sketchy bridges over the streams in there. Lots of dirt and gravel was brought in to build up the road over the swamp, and getting through this area in a truck was always a driving challenge. But once you got through the Digue, you were at Quata. It was rustic living conditions. Basically, it was bring your own everything. Linens, kerosene for the fridge, propane tank for the stove, lanterns, food, games, clothes, towels, etc. And of course, your swimming suit. The houses had dishes, kitchen utensils, beds, and furniture. They also constructed a few mud huts in the back where the vacationing missionary's cook or house helper would sleep when accompanying the family to the lake. No electricity or indoor plumbing meant outhouses. The trip to the outhouse was quite an ordeal for a little kid. 
or an adult for that matter. They were often placed at distance from the houses, away from the lake, and up on a hill. The reason was that you didn't want the outhouses to seep waste into the lake. I remember someone would sometimes put colored dye down the outhouse hole and then check the lake a day or so later to see if there was evidence of the latrine seeping into the lake. I heard from Byron Seashore's daughter, Ruthie Lane, that he'd built the outhouse for the Shalom house. He built the box on which to sit. Then he sat on the box, took a pencil, and traced an outline around his sitting body. Then he cut the hole to size. Mind you, Byron was a tall, large man. Thus, the hole he cut was huge. The running joke was that little kids might fall in since the hole was built for a big guy like Byron Seashore. Well, believe it or not, in April of 1975, no, 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 just kidding. I never heard of anybody falling in. The property was maintained by a couple of men from the adjacent village who were paid to keep the grass cut, the grounds maintained, and the houses secure. Kindy was the caretaker for the Free Church houses. He had a mustache, as I recall, and was the caretaker for all of my growing up years. Good guy, Kindy. Since the houses were in the forest and swamp area, the noises from the creatures at night was incredibly loud. It sounded like this. You'd have insects, animals, and varmints all making their noises, but the loudest of all were the frogs. They'd start croaking at sundown and go all night. And I mean all night, back and forth. One group from one lagoon would croak, and their buddies across the water a ways would have to counter suit. They were so loud, hundreds of them, and the forest would echo the noise, and the water transmitted the sound even further. So if you had to get up in the middle of the night and take a scary walk with a flashlight out to the path, then up the steps to the outhouse, it was not fun. One would open the outhouse door with trepidation, wondering if there were snakes in there or what. Often, a rat or lizard would scurry around in there, further giving a kid the heebie-jeebies. Let's just say I learned to hold it till morning, or I'd find a tree nearby and spare myself going inside the outhouse with who knows what critter. I do remember being at Quata with the Petersons during Christmas of 1970, and Anne went to the outhouse in the middle of the night, and there was a cobra in there, curled up in the corner. Needless to say, I don't blame her for finding a nearby bush. I mean, do bears go in the woods? Amenities were added to this rest and vacation spot for the missionaries. Sometime around 1955 or 56, someone built a wooden raft to play on. It was buoyed by six big 55-gallon barrels. Then, in the late 1960s, Bob Thornbloom built a new raft. It measured about 10 feet by 8 feet. Pushing that raft out into the lake gave us a great place to swim to, jump from, and just have fun on. There was also a wooden boat dock built in the 1950s by the Free Church House, and someone had a boat with a small motor. People tried water skiing, but the motor was too small for that. In the early 1960s, a wooden tower was built 40 feet out from the beach. It had a square platform about 5 feet above the water where one could jump off or whatever. 
It also had a diving board. This wooden tower eventually rotted out. So around 1968, Bob Thornbloom built a new tower with precast concrete and big pipes for support. This tower had a ladder to climb up to the top platform, which provided hours of fun for diving, jumping, or doing cannonballs for hundreds of kids and adults. That tower lasted well into the 1990s. There was also a supply of truck tire inner tubes of various sizes. We'd pump these up and spend hours floating on these in the water, playing on them, and having fun. Or we'd roll them up to the Covenant House on the hill and have someone stand the tire up, climb inside, they'd give us a shove, and we'd roll down the hill getting super dizzy. Whee! Big, big fun. There was also a big tree on the bank just in from the tower. Someone tied a rope on it, probably about 20 feet up. There was a dead anthill right there that had a big cement block on the top, so kids could grab the rope, stand on the big block, and swing down the bank, out over the water, and drop in, probably a 10 to 12 foot drop at the full end of the rope swing. What fun that was, doing flips, dives, or sometimes belly flops. Ouch! As a kid at Karawa, many Saturdays included a drive out to Lake Quata for an afternoon of swimming and fun. Every kid looked forward to Quata trips. It was about a 35 to 40 minute drive, depending on the road conditions. I remember hearing about a guy on a motorcycle doing it in 19 minutes. Wow! The high schoolers would often do a walkathon out to Quata to raise money for the annual yearbook publication. I remember one year, my group of walkers slash runners made it to Quata in two hours and 19 minutes on foot. At least, that was according to Dan Noren's watch. One of the negative things about Quata was that since the water was still and didn't flow anywhere, one always picked up a head cold after swimming. I do remember that. I've asked several folks that were children and grew up going to Quata to give their perspectives of the lake. Here is Rick Saline telling what he remembers about Lake Quata. One of the memories was the ride to Quata. We would stand in the back of the pickup truck for the Saturday trips to the lake, singing almost the whole way. Some of us even fashioned some handheld propellers to catch the wind during the trip as well. I remember trying to perfect my doggy paddle well enough to swim to the diving tower. Of course, once I could reach the tower, I had to increase my swimming ability quite quickly to survive the king of the tower games. Then there's the swing rope and the exhilaration of the proper release and sometimes awkwardness of the poor or no release. I remember collecting Kisolo beans that we used for a game much like Mancala. And, of course, there were the building of castles on the beach. And most of all, I remember the contentment of nearly complete exhaustion upon return to the dorm at the end of the day. Rick also shares about a sailboat his dad made for Lake Quato. This is the story of Sandbox One. My dad, he liked to do things on the water, like fishing and sailing. He was also from Minnesota, where we have a lot of lakes, and in Minnesota we use boats to get to some of the best fishing holes. Well, my dad also liked to build things, so the idea arose to build a boat. But 
how would you power it? Well, a sail is probably the least costly, but most sailboats have a V-bottom that would not work on most of the lakes and rivers in the Ubangi. That is where the idea of a flat-bottom sailboat came from, and the shape of the sailboat also inspired the name Sandbox One. This whole thing was built by hand, working hard to seal all the seams between the boards with strips of cloth soaked in paint. The maiden voyage occurred on Lake Quata. Now, Quata was not a large body of water, and there were trees all the way around. This meant that Dad had to paddle the boat out a ways away from the shore just to catch the wind, and that made the area he had to sail in quite small, but he learned to zigzag and tack to move around the lake. Dad retired Sandbox 1 to Quata when we returned to the United States for the last time in 1973. John Lundquist shares more memories of being a kid at Quata. I was thinking about what Quata meant to us as kids or to me, but for me, for one thing, it was this wonderful chance to have mom and dad around the house, relaxed, with no demands on them, aside from whatever was needed for daily living. And that was really nice. It felt good to feel them be so relaxed and not have any schedule, nothing like that. I really enjoyed that. And then second, of course, being in a beautiful place with a lake like that and being able to go out and swim pretty much until we were worn out. <laughs> and our mom would focus more on having fun food than at home. At home, it was more about nutrition and making things last. And at Quad, it would be time for pulling out the special things that were saved for a special time. And she'd make pizza and hamburgers and hot dogs much more often at Quad than at home. And then I don't know who all was responsible for the various books that were at Quada, but there were books there that, you know, that I didn't have access to anywhere else. I learned about King Alfred the Great there and I, different things. I remember something about Dick Whittington's cat, some story about Dick Whittington and his cat. And we would play board games. And there wasn't, you know, of course, any TV or, or radio. Oh, and then uh, roasting uh, marshmallows on the fire inside. It was just a matter of family togetherness and fun with no normal schedule. And for the most part, with rare exceptions, no pressure for mom or dad or anything like that. David Lumblad, who was in Congo until the late 1950s and whose parents were instrumental in getting the property and possibly the first house built, shares his memory of Lake Quata. Well, one of my favorite memories goes back to 1956 when I was baptized in the lake by Sig Westberg at the same time as Dorothy Westberg, Lois Thornbloom, Jackie Dangers, and me, the four of us. So that's a good memory for me. Another good memory I have is the walks we would take around the perimeter of the lake. But that was always a little bit spooky because I remember sometimes all of a sudden there'd be a huge cobweb in front of us and we didn't see it. And but boy, there was a big, big spider there and we would crawl around it just to get away from it. Yeah, I would say the, the, the uh, swimming at uh, night which was kind of a fun thing to do, although we think we're all were afraid of snakes at the same time. And uh, coming to Quad, was always a big deal because of the, the uh, dig, they called it, you know, where all those bridges were. And it, to me, that was always such a terrible swamp. But that was something we had to cross in order to get over to, to Quad. 
Yeah, I remember the raft. In fact, it was, you know, the raft made off with big barrels and going out into the, uh, kind of not quite to the center of the lake, but far away from the shore, and Ole Olberg standing up on top of there and a bunch of us kids just swimming around him, and he was giving us instructions. So here he was, the teacher, in the middle of the raft, observing all of us kids swimming around, uh, you know, hopefully all in the same direction. And uh, at a vacation once with the family, and I remember during siesta, my brother said, hey, there's a snake going in there. Nobody believed him. They, he was, they thought he was teasing. Well, 24 hours later, next siesta, there was a snake that had spent the night with us the whole time in our room. And, of course, uh, it wasn't exactly, I don't know if it was a, a mamba or what it was, but I tell you, that's when guardian angels put in some overtime for us. I remember <laughs> when we were playing in the water, and if we were teasing, we as kids were teasing each other and screaming and yelling. My mom was out there right away because across the lake was the Belgian state house. And she said, they're going to hear all the fighting that's going on because, you know, everything is transmitted much quicker across water. And I remember that as being something that we were always admonished to stop the fighting because there were always people at the Belgian place. Here's another quota memory as told by Doug Thorpe. One school vacation, Rick Celine asked his parents if I could accompany them for their week of vacation at Quata. They agreed, and I was happy to do that. And Rick and I had a great time that week. One trouble, though, was that our sleep was disturbed by a whole lot of racket from a bunch of frogs. So one evening we took our flashlights and a couple of baseball bats, and we dispatched a number of frogs. Then a little bit chagrined at the loss of life we had brought about, we decided we could redeem the situation somewhat if we ate the froglets. We enlisted Uncle Dick Celine in our plan, and he got us some oil, put it on a burner of the stove to heat up, poured out some flour, and we dredged the frog legs in the flour, fried them up. But when we went to taste the first one, we noticed that it was unusually sweet. And we checked, and sure enough, Uncle Dick, instead of getting a bag of flour, had pulled out a bag of powdered sugar. So we had the sweetest fried frog legs ever. <laughs> Classic story. Boy, do I ever remember those frogs croaking all night. James Edstrom has some memories as well. I have many memories of time at Quada. Playing games at night, and this usually meant meeting at one of the houses after dark. Uh, there were no generators at Quada, so the only lights that we had were candles, lamps, and lanterns. We played games like I Passed the Cup, Up Jenkins, Rook, Double 42. We used to also play Up and Down the River. And we also were interrupted at various times of the games someone would all of a sudden just jump up and sprint to one of the Aladdin lamps that had uh, started to go up in flames. And uh, then the lamp had to be turned down to get back to its normal state. I remember roasting a pig one time 
we were out at Quada with the Dangers and the Colbys, and uh, Jeff Dangers talked us into roasting a pig, and it was pretty much an all-day affair, but it was a lot of fun. In the water, we used to play on the raft. We also used to play on the tower. We played freeze tag under the legs, so we had to tread water, and uh, it was a version of tag. We used to play in the water. There was a rope swing that was a lot of fun. The rope was attached to a, the tree, uh, just kind of aiming towards the tower. We used to try to see how far we could actually fly out into the water, uh, get as close to the tower as we could. I do remember with the houses there, uh, especially the far house opposite of the one house up way up on the hill. Uh, it was the biggest house. It had the worst outhouse. It was way behind the cookhouse, and uh, it was just horrible if you had to go up there at night. You would open the door, put your flashlight in, see if there were any kind of live creatures in there, maybe some spiders or anything that uh, you wouldn't want in there when you were trying to go to the bathroom. I also remember traveling to and from Quada. I can picture the different parts of the trip. The very top of the hill, right before you went down uh, to the Deeg, it was called the highway. That stretch at the top was always in great shape, didn't have erosion issues, and so we would try to go as fast as we possibly could on that stretch. The last memory that I have to share is coming back from Quada. Sometimes in the early, mid-evening, just when the sun was going down, the last stretch of road before you would head towards Carowa. So it was on the hill opposite of, uh, of Carowa. And you could see the dorm lights. And sometimes you could even hear sounds of the dorm. And it was just a wonderful, beautiful picture in that wonderful African landscape. And I think about the wonderful song by Peter Gabriel, Salisbury Hill, and the lyrics uh, read, Climbing up on Salisbury Hill, I could see the city light. Wind was blowing, time stood still, ego flew out of the night. And it's just a wonderful picture, I think, of coming back to Kerala from Quada. But remember the houses were built at Lake Quada for the missionaries to rest, rejuvenate, and vacation at. Unlike here in the U.S., where you can jump in a car or airplane and be at a vacation spot in a matter of hours, you had to leave the country to truly vacation anywhere. So for this reason, Lake Quada was a true rest spot for the career missionaries. It was a place to get away from one's daily work, from people constantly lined up at your door needing something, and a change of pace. It was also a place to spend quality family time as most of the kids were away at the boarding school for weeks at a time. I've asked Lori and Jean Bradford, missionaries to Congo for many years, to share what Quada meant to them. One of the highlights for me particularly was the women's retreat that we had at Quada. I don't remember what year it was, but Ruth Hill had organized it. And it was like a whole weekend, maybe three, four days. And it was just a wonderful time of just the women sharing with each other. And, of course, 
family times, those were special because, of course, like you say, nobody was at the door. A lot of times, <laughs> Gene took work to Quata because that was the only time he could focus on work without being interrupted all the time. But some of the times that are particularly fond memories are the times that uh, your mom and dad, Roger and Sally Eels, were out at Quata and we would spend special time together doing meals together and one thing and another. One of the things we'd enjoy out at Quata was playing games with the kids. And, and one thing that we learned pretty early out there was that you never got onto a team that had Rob and Laurie Thorpe on the same team. We couldn't beat them. Especially with Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> we, we just couldn't beat them. Then our both our my mom and dad came out. We took mom and dad to Quata, which they really enjoyed. And then a few years later, Gene's dad came out, and he was quite enthralled with Quata. You know, there was always the unexpected uh, happened out there driving the old blue Chevy one-ton crew cab that we had. And I got right near Quata, where there was kind of a swampy area, and there had been a road built up through it. And there was a CB Zaire truck, which was like a seven-ton Toyota truck that had bounced off the road, and the front end was in the swamp. I sat there and looked at them for a while, and I figured, well, I'll be here all day if I don't do something about it. So I drove down there, and they were waving at me that I couldn't get past them, all that kind of stuff. When I got there, I said, have you got a chain? And they said, yeah, get it out, we'll hook it up. And they look at their big seven-ton Toyota truck with a big box on it and my little one-ton Chevy, and I pulled them right out with that thing. Well, and one of the other things that I enjoyed about Quata was the fireplaces. It was so nice to be able to light a fire, take a book, and just read when it was raining, cats and dogs outside and the pounding on the roof with the fireplaces. It's amazing how cold it would get out there. And it was always kind of a special place for us. Anastasia Hansel, who spent 13 years in Congo in the 1940s and 50s, recounts a special family tradition her parents would observe at Lake Quata. So my major memory, Christmas memory, was that every Christmas when my parents were missionaries there uh, at Bado, we always went to Lake Quata for Christmas. It was just something that was kind of a tradition for us. And so my mom was known as a phenomenal hostess and entertainer and whatnot. And so we would do Christmas Eve as a family, but then on Christmas Day, all of the single women at Carowa would come and they would do Christmas Day with us. I just remember that. But that was kind of special for them because, you know, they didn't really have a family. And so we just always had them for that. But this one particular Christmas, we had some very, very wealthy friends um, in the San Francisco Bay Area that uh, were kind of a um, paradigm buster in terms of what they gave to, to missionaries. And so we would get these huge boxes at Christmas, every single one of us, and it wasn't just one thing. It was just a, a huge box of all, and they were top-of-the-line gorgeous gifts. That it was It was such a a paradigm buster for me that, that I have carried into even my ministry 
with what I do internationally with women. Anyway, but this one particular Christmas, here we are at Lake Plata, and the Branagh's boxes, that was like Santa Claus coming. Their boxes had not arrived. There was nothing under the Christmas tree. And I just remember we had the Christmas tree there, and it was Christmas Eve, and we had our regular attempt at a <laughs> Swedish Christmas murder board. I don't know, it was late. And out of nowhere, all of a sudden, I'll never forget it, but these bright headlights of this big three-ton truck came driving in, and our boxes had arrived. And I don't know who was the person that realized this was Christmas for the Davis family, but they made sure they got it to us. And I'll never forget it. It was kind of like Santa Claus, but it was the God show. It was the God show in my life, without a doubt, that I've never forgotten and has impacted me in terms of giving and what that can mean. I told that to Nat and Charlie when I came back to the United States, and, I mean, they couldn't believe it, you know, you know the ministry that they had in, in our lives. My folks, Roger and Sally Eels, have some memories as well. When I was a kid, my family had a cottage in the lake. And we spent all summer there from late spring to early fall. And it was just wonderful. We could do everything we wanted. Well, when we got to Congo, there was Lake Quada. And it was just wonderful because it was just half an hour, 45 minutes by a truck ride out to the lake. And when we were there as a family, I had nothing to do. There was no expectations except putting food on the table three times a day but it it was just wonderful and had no responsibility out there and so I had time to just do what I wanted I didn't have to play mother all the time or wife all the time it was just fun I could be in the water with the boys or I could be reading it was just it was just great it was a Great break from our ministries in Karawa or later in Gemina. Wada for me wasn't as exciting as most people. I went out and uh, it was okay. But the thing about Quada that I liked the most was I could take my class from UBAC out there for outdoor education. And so in April of 1967, I had uh, 17, I think it was, fifth through eighth graders. And off we went to Quata for two nights, three days, and we did school there. And so some of the students, they wanted to study village life and interact with the Africans in the nearby villages. And so they learned a little bit about African culture. But the uh, main interest among the students was to study the lake. And so I had a a group of boys, and they decided that they were going to take the depths, find the depths of the water. And so they got into the water, and they went to this place and that place and measured the depths of the water. And so to me, that was a, a highlight of being able to take my students out to Quata do some outdoor education, get them out of the classroom, and get them into the real world. So so that, to me, was the important thing of WADA. 
I did enjoy going to Quanta because it was a break, as your mother said, it was a break from the usual ministries, and it was time to read, and I, I always had a book to read, and it was good time to have quiet devotions on the edge of the lake and, and watch nature and so forth. So, yes, there was some good things about Quanta, and, and I'm glad it was there, and, and, and it was good for us to go there. When my family vacationed there, I remember it being a great launching spot for hunting trips. There was a rule you couldn't shoot a gun within 500 yards from the lake. Actually, during my research, I discovered that in 1954, the mission board requested that the area require a special permit to hunt or fish, to basically create a wildlife sanctuary of sorts. But, after talking to the Belgian government game warden, the committee changed their minds to pursue this officially. However, this rule, though not legally binding, was still an understanding by everyone that there was no hunting in the vicinity of the lake. In any event, many a hunting trip involved leaving from Lake Quata for other nearby forest areas for hunting monkeys, birds, and antelope. There was good hunting out by Quata. Fishing was also a fun thing. I'd catch grasshoppers during the day or go in the lagoon and dig up the mud and muck and catch worms for bait. At dusk, I'd take little fishing poles, which were just a stick and a short piece of fishing line and a hook, and then stick the pole into the bank of the lake and drop the hook into the water. About an hour later, I'd take a flashlight and make my rounds to check the poles. Sure enough, there would be a small catfish. I'd rebate the hook and do it again. One night, we caught about 15 catfish. Then, the next day, my brother and Harlan Nelson and I lit a fire in the big outdoor stone fireplace by the First Free Church House and tried to smoke the catfish. What we didn't realize was that the top of the chimney was four feet from the fire, so almost no heat made it to the catfish on the top. Tons of wood, sticks, and green leaves making a ton of smoke yielded nothing but raw catfish by late afternoon. Note to self. It's the heat that does the majority of drying and smoking of the fish. Burning green leaves just produces a ton of smoke and stings your eyes and doesn't do diddly squat for smoking fish properly. Swimming at night under the moonlight was another fun ritual when at Lake Quata, but the key was to always keep moving when in the water, or you had to go quite a ways out from the lake's edge into deeper water. You see, if you didn't keep moving or were in shallow water, Often, bloodsuckers would latch onto your leg or body. When the leeches attach themselves, you don't feel it. But when you got out of the water and turned on the flashlight, you'd see a thin black ribbon that was two to three inches long stuck on the side of your leg. Don't even try to pull it off. It won't work, as they're way too slimy to grab. What you do is, you get some salt and sprinkle some salt on them they immediately start to shed blood from themselves to get the salt off. Pour more salt on, and they unlatch, and then they die in the salt pile. You'll have a little red spot, maybe a quarter inch in diameter on your leg, but you're not worse for wear. It's basically a small hickey, and the spot will be gone in a few days. I remember a sunken log in the lagoon between the two free church houses that was maybe 18 inches underwater. Once I dove off the tower and swam underwater to the log and made it part way back. Jay Dangers once made it from the tower under the log 
and back to the tower in one breath. Wow. Another great underwater swimmer was Craig Wickstrom. There'd be these little ducks or loons swimming around the lake, and Craig would sneak up on them in an inner tube, take a deep breath, and swim underwater and come up right underneath these ducks and try to catch them. I did confirm that he got within six inches a few times, but never once did he catch a duck. I'm sure that bugs him even to this day. Another activity many families would do was swim around the entire lake. Often they would have someone with an inner tube just in case, but many folks swim across or all the way around the lake with success. I'd estimate it to be about 1,500 yards around the lake. So you've heard about the discovery of the lake, the acquisition of the property, the building of the houses, and the amenities like the raft, tower, and swing rope. But what are the particulars about the lake that might give a clue about how the lake was formed and its age? There was a legend as to the mystery of how the lake was formed, and superstition and fear of the lake by the Congolese was prevalent during all my growing up years in the 60s through the 80s and remains to this day. The lake is about 1,600 feet wide east to west and about 1,250 feet long north to south. It sort of looks like a squished heart shape from above. The lake was fed by a network of underground streams, mostly on the south side of the lake. This explains why there are several streams that drain out of the lake, but none feed into the lake. In April of 1967, my dad, Roger Eels, took about 17 boys and girls from the boarding school out to the lake for a school field trip. One of the assignments was to do depth measurements. I've heard from five of the field trip attendees from 55 years ago, and they all clearly remember that trip, especially the depth soundings exercise. Consensus from banter a few weeks ago between a few of the then kids, now 60-somethings, when asked about what they remembered about the lake depth from 1967, was that the deepest spot was about 60 feet, and towards the middle it was about 45 feet. It's generally deepest on the south side of the lake, going from around 50 to 60 feet deep, while on the north side of the lake, the depth is only 25 to 30 feet. So the whole lake bottom slopes down, north to south. Based on the depth soundings, my guess is the lake is fed from the south side. There was a tree about halfway between the houses and the Belgian State House that had fallen over and was growing horizontally, extending over the lake about 30 feet. It had resecured, and over the years, new branches grew vertically. The tree had white bark and looked like a huge dinosaur, so it was affectionately named Dino. As kids, we'd take a path through the jungle to the tree, then walk along the trunk, balancing carefully. Then we'd climb one of the branches, putting us about 15 feet above the water. Then we'd jump. Jumping from the highest branch on Dino was a rite of passage of being brave as a young kid. I know a few people tried to touch bottom, but never heard of success. This was the known deepest spot in the lake at 60 feet. I was told, though, that Ole Olberg measured 80 feet there, but nobody knows for sure. There are two tribes that claim the Lake Quata origination story, the Ngbandi and the Mbanzas. Interestingly, the Ngbandi word, Quada, means death there. 
Yet the Mbanza tribe also has a connection. As about six miles away, there's a river that is called Big Water in the Mbanza language. It was about 140 years ago that the Mbaka tribe pushed out the Mbandis and the Mbanzas. The Mbakas have been there since the 1880s when they migrated down from Sudan. This is important to know and will make sense when Bob Woodman shares the story about how Lake Quata came to be. Consistent with the legend of how Quata was formed, there is actually some good evidence for Quata being a young lake. First, that three of the five species of fish in Quata were introduced by the Belgians. The Belgians came to Congo in the early 1900s when it became a colony in 1908. Also, that there is barely a sixteenth of an inch of slime on the lake bottom also is an indicator. There are very few fish species in the lake. Quata is surrounded by water in the deeg or swamp side, and there was a stream on the other side. Yet, none of the fish species from those streams that are so close are in the lake except for the small catfish. Remember, no water goes into the lake. That indicates it's a young lake and supports that the Quata legend has a good-sized kernel of truth. I've asked Bob Woodman, who grew up in Congo, and the son of Harvey, who built the first house in 1943, to tell the story how the lake was formed and his dad's actions to assuage the superstitions by the Congolese. In the memoir that was written by my parents, it said there was a legend about the lake and the Africans said it was haunted by a ghost about the size of a person that appeared on top of the water after somebody died in the villages and it roamed about on top of the water and then disappeared. And the name Kowada, evidently Mbaka, uh, means the hand that threw. And evidently this referred to a woman whose son had died in the Gaza's boys camp. And it's simply, as I understood it, a rite of passage where young men or young women went to be indoctrinated into the ways of their culture. And it was as I understand it, a passage from childhood to adulthood. You know, the women's Gaza camp or the young girls' Gaza camp, if I understood it or remember correctly, after the Gaza camp, they were eligible to be married. One of the things that happened at the Gaza camp, at least for men, was circumcision. So what would happen is, is the young men or women would be taken out to a camp which was sheltered from anybody outside of the camp. In other words, they had a, an enclosed in area where for anybody that wasn't an actual participant in that camp, it would be difficult for them to get let in. And every day it says his mother would come to the camp with food and when her son was circumcised, he died. My guess would be this was by in, infection and she would bring the food to the camp, but evidently she wasn't, like most people, allowed into the camp. And the mother wasn't informed of the death, and so when the boys were released and the mother couldn't find her son, she took poison and sprinkled it around the camp. Um, supposedly then the camp sank into the ground and the water came up and formed the lake. And the villagers, as a consequence, would shy away from the lake. So they believe the lake is haunted. But there's a lot of 
belief in African culture about the spirit world. It's interesting because what I recall my dad saying was uh, he had a work crew out there building the first road into Lake Quada. And uh, it says here in the memoir that one day a leopard, which was a totem of one of the clans, uh, evidently had stalked the workmen and they all ran into the mission and they were fearful and they claimed they'd seen a spirit on the water and were told that indicated someone had died in the surrounding village. Here it says after prayer with them, they returned to the work, work. But my dad said when he was talking to me, he challenged them and said, well, he said to prove to you that there aren't spirits out, you know, on the lake, I'll go sleep out there. And so he went out by himself and slept by the lake and then said that they returned after that. So that was the story that I had. To further complement the story from Bob, the only additional thing I heard was that the distraught mother, upon hearing of her child's death, went to visit the local witch doctor to put a curse on the entire village, which was the Gaza camp for the boys. He gave her a satchel of ashes, and she took the ashes and walked around the entire village and sprinkled them, making a giant circle. And then she cast a spell and the entire Gaza camp sank and was covered in water. So, do you believe the story of how Lake Quata came to be? Is it plausible based on the geological facts we have already discussed about the lake itself? Was a curse put on the village and the village sank into a hole and water came up and covered it? With the lake being fed by underground streams, it is feasible that at some point the ground gave way and the ground collapsed, as noted with the slope of the lake bottom. Nonetheless, the legend of the curse on the Gaza initiation village that sank is prevalent to this day. Now, for those of us that swam and vacationed there, Lake Quata is full of wonderful memories. Unfortunately, with the missionaries leaving in the late 1990s due to the Civil War and the lack of maintenance, weather, and termites, the houses are currently run down and one is actually missing its roof. The Big Covenant House is currently occupied by the local pastor. One thing we can all be grateful for is that nobody was seriously injured at Quata. Harlan Nelson got a fish hook stuck in his shin once when we were fishing for catfish, so had to go to the Carowa Hospital to get it removed. And I'm sure there were numerous bumps and bruises incurred with some of the horseplay on the raft, horseplay on the tower, and belly flops off the swing rope. But nobody drowned in all those years. There were a few close calls that were shared with me in preparing this episode. For instance, Sarah Wester, as a toddler, was rescued by Jay Dangers in a few feet of water near the beach area. And a lot of could-have stories where someone performed feats of swimming or was involved in horseplay that could have been disastrous but weren't, thank God. But ultimately, Lake Quata brought great memories, fun, family time, game time, reading time, swimming, fellowship, rest, relaxation, long naps, a change of pace, and a sanctuary from the real world for a few hours or a few weeks, depending. I want to thank the audio contributors that I previously named for sharing their memories of Quata to enrich this story. Also, thanks to Paul Noren for all the specific facts about the lake's history, its age, and ecosystem. Special thanks also to John Lundquist for being a sounding board and helping gather material as I piece this story together. 
and Drs. Tim Wester and Tom Cairns provided excellent archive materials to put the timeline together of the Lake Quata history. But the folks I want to thank the most are those from the 1940s to late 1950s that made Lake Quata a reality. They had the vision, the drive, and the tenacity to finish the job. The time, effort, money, hard work, setbacks, delays, planning, and elbow grease that they invested to see the homes built and create the oasis that became Lake Quata cannot go unmentioned. It was those that came in the 1960s and after that who were able to enjoy the fruits of their labor and experience the wonderful vacation spot. We did not appreciate how much work and effort it took to make it happen. Very few folks knew the difficult journey from the early 1940s to 1958, but now we all know the story, and we can appreciate and honor them for their hard work. So to those that created the quota that so many of us enjoyed, I want to say thank you from me and from the hundreds of people that enjoyed the homes and property for so many years. If you want to see Lake Quata for yourself, go to Google Earth, type in Lake Quata, DR Congo. That's L-A-C space K-W-A-D-A. And you can zoom in on it and see it for yourself. Lake Quata, a simple body of water in the middle of the jungle in Congo. Lake Quata, first seen by Dr. Wally Thornbloom and possibly two nurses in the late 1930s. Lake Quata, a group of mission leaders saw the vision and need for a place of rest and retreat and made it happen. It was funded by the mission, the missionaries themselves, lots of elbow grease by many folks, and a generous gift of $4,000. Lake Quata, a place of rest, rejuvenation, recreation, and a million memories for those that spent time there. Recall what Dr. Titus Johnson, the first missionary to Kerala, wrote in his journal in 1947 about visiting Lake Quata. A most wonderful day. The water was wonderful. Surely, this is a future heaven in Congo. In my response to Dr. Titus Johnson is this. You were so right. Lake Quata was truly heaven in Congo. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will listen again. Other podcasts and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Congo Kids Life Stories are also posted on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I will send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.